2022, Team Milk came together by sponsoring female marathon runners for the marathon in New York City. Today, they're more than 20,000 strong. In 2024, Team Milk is making an even bigger commitment to female runners and launching the only women's marathon in the U.S., designed for and by women. The inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. I think we can all agree the current political moment is fraught. But how does it compare to the other fraught political moments in history? It felt for a time in part of that decade like everything was falling apart. Young people against old people, anti-war violence, peace movement. I'm former U.S. Attorney Preet Bharara, and this week, presidential historian Doris Kearns Goodwin joins me on my podcast, Stay Tuned with Preet. We talk about difficult times in America's history and how its people overcame them. The episode is out now. Search and follow Stay Tuned with Preet wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm Evan Ratliff. I'm here with my co-hosts, Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer. Hello. Hello, hello. Hello, hello. The uh, the fourth voice that you hear uh, might be my dog. She's like, she's panting very loudly. I also hear a child. <laughs> That's my child. <laughs> All the critters are around. All the critters are around. Evan, who is uh, on the show this week? Uh, I'm very excited about this week's show. I talked to Jason Parham who is a senior writer for Wired magazine. He has a cover story for the September issue, which is called Stolen Moments, TikTok, and the Evolution of Digital Blackface, uh, which is all about the way culture manifests on TikTok and also exploitation and also appropriation. It's a really, really fascinating look combination of reportage and essay. And Jason, I've been following his work for years. He's uh, used to be an editor at Gawker. He was an editor at The Fader. He's written for those places, among many others. He also, on the side, has his own literary magazine that he edits called Spook. Uh, He's just a multi-talented guy, and he's got a lot of great thoughts. Interesting time to be writing about TikTok. Oh, yeah. I, particip- I participate in TikTok uh, I, a little I bit. I really like to see a replay of the preparation uh, Evan did for this podcast where he went on TikTok for the first time. Wait a second. You you interrupted him. He was saying he's he does TikTok. I, I'm, I'm dipping into TikTok a little bit. Really? You guys, I'm, I'm just ramping up. But you know I was big on Vine. As a creator or a consumer? Creator. My cat was famous on Vine. You're on TikTok. I'm on TikTok. I haven't posted much, but I'm 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 kind of like working up to it. <laughs> he only does dances. If you're looking to show off a new hobby like uh, Evan's TikTok hobby, uh, why not do it in a newsletter form? More age appropriate venue. It uh, it's a great thing to do for your career or your project, and uh, do it with Mailchimp. They make it easy. And they're reliable. They've been around as long as this podcast, which is a very, very long time, and have supported it the whole way. And now here's Evan, a.k.a. at Henry Little Boots on TikTok with Jason Parham. Jason, welcome to the Long Form Podcast. Uh, thank you for having me. I met you years ago 
I don't think I've seen you since. I don't know. Maybe we ran into each other one time, but I, I remember very distinctly meeting you at the 2012 at David Carr through a party. He would throw a party at South by Southwest every year. And there was a lot of fun people at that party. Like the sort of iconic David Carr media party at South by Southwest. It was my actually first time going to South by and Jenna Wortham was like, you should come with me to this party. It's amazing. Not knowing that it was going to be sort of a who's who of like media people there. Um, and then the night got a lot blurrier after that, but it was a good time. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I think my memory fades after the (laughs) commencement of the party itself. I remember there being a party bus at one point and we got on and then maybe karaoke or singing later in the night, but it was a good time. Yeah. Well, that party bus was organized by Wired Magazine, <laughs> where you are now a staff writer. So well, there circle, you go. Full circle. All moment. the way around. <laughs> <laughs> but I remember being introduced to you as uh, that you were the editor of a literary magazine, that you had your own literary magazine, which I kind of thought, oh, wow, this guy's already made it. Uh, he's, he's launched his own literary magazine. <laughs> Far from made it, but yeah, it was <laughs> back in 2012, I want to say, started Spook. Yeah. This, I had this idea for a literary magazine for writers of color, Black writers, Latinx writers, Asian writers, queer writers, disabled writers, people who were sort of looking for a place and a voice to tell their stories. And I love The New Yorker, love Granta, still kind of love Harper's occasionally. Um, but so often, I think our voices were being left out of the conversation. There was always a Zadie Smith. There was always a Colson Whitehead. But they were always sort of the exception in the magazine. So I was like, well, I know a ton of amazing writers. Why can't I also just put something together from there? Yeah. And, now, and so I kind of thought of you as this, you know, literary person running your literary magazine. And I was sort of watched over the years as you were into journalism and Gawker and Fader and now Wired. And so I wanted to kind of go back and reapproach how you got into your career because you have this big cover story out for Wired right now, which I want to talk a lot about. Um, But I want to kind of set the frame for how you acquired all of the knowledge and skills to be able to tell that story. Right, right. So I studied print journalism in undergrad. 2004, 2008, and this was sort of the height of the recession. I was graduating in 2008. So as somebody who kind of over-prepares, I was like, well, let me both apply to jobs, not knowing how grave this sort of recession was, being in school and kind of this bubble and not knowing that there really were no media jobs available. There was a giant like freeze in the industry and people were kind of being laid off left and right. And also let me apply to grad school. And so I applied to a few literature program, a few African-American studies programs. But I also wanted to just really be in New York really badly. So I ended up getting into Columbia and UCLA. And I ended up getting a full scholarship to UCLA and just decided to go with that. Even though I didn't really want to go back home, I'm originally from Los Angeles, but it seemed like the right idea at the time. And so I kind of studied literature and African-American studies, reading a lot of Ralph Ellison, James Baldwin and Gloria Naylor, Paul Beattie, Wanda Coleman, a lot of like people who informed a lot of my thinking and when I wanted to put food together. And did you, um, when you, you decided to get that second degree, did you have a sense of sort of where you wanted to go after that? Or were you just sort of like, I'll take shelter in this while the recession blows over and then figure it out? Like, did you have an image in your mind? Okay, when I launch my career, this is where I'm headed. This is what I want. 
thought I might freelance for a while then attempt to write a few novels. <laughs> and that didn't really pan out. And I was started again when I graduated in 2010. I just kind of eventually took the jump and I was like, fuck it and let me go to New York City. At the time, my brother, who's three years older than me, um, he had went to NYU and he was still living in New York City. And my cousin, who's also like my best friend, he was at St. John's, who's also my age. And they were both like, come to New York, just come and we'll figure it out. And so from there, I just kind of left LA and finally eventually came to New York. And this was about 10 years ago this summer with no job, very little savings. Um, I came in July, 2010, and then I eventually got a fellowship at the Village Voice that November. And was there anyone that you had in your mind as sort of like, I would like a career like this? I mean, I grew up reading. I was sort of a, a student of like old school buy magazine, old school double XL. Mm. Um, I really wanted to be a music writer growing up and sort of Danielle Smith was the kind of sort of totem for me. She was the sort of peak and the summit in terms of like career wise, she had been an editor and a writer and then eventually editor in chief of vibe, but also she was just sort of a real stylist as a writer and somebody who consumes and reads so much. The way she wrote kind of just really spoke to me. I was like, I kind of want to do this and model myself after this. Um, but the economy had other plans. So. <laughs> <laughs> and when you got to The Voice, you guys said you got a fellowship at The Voice. You know, I, I'm sure if you kind of look through the roster of people that have ever had a, that kind of fellowship, a lot of them didn't end up staying in journalism. So what, <laughs> what kind of like hooked you in? Like, what was that atmosphere like at that time? It was my first real introduction to sort of reporting in New York City. I was on the news desk. And so I had a sort of roving position where I would maybe one day be reporting about student protests and maybe the next day I would be downtown Brooklyn in court reporting about a case. But I think The Voice, rest in peace, I think what The Voice used to be a really great incubator of talent, right? So when I was there, Zach Barron was there. When I was there, Stephen Thrasher was there. Jen Dahl was there. Foster Kamer. So there was a lot of talent that they were able to sort of nurture. And I kind of just took it all in as much as I could. And what was the sort of next step from there? Like, did you ever think of launching Spook as kind of like a going venture or as always as kind of a side gig for everything you were trying to do? So I think I had two ideas for Spook in the beginning. One, I really wanted to be analog and offline. So I didn't want any digital copies of Spook to be available anywhere. I wanted people to sit with it and read it. And kind of this old school experience, this purest experience of sitting with a magazine and really enjoying it as much as they could. But I also knew that on the flip side, if I made it a full-time job, I think I would hate it. And so I knew that I wanted to pursue other things, but I could still do Spook on the side. So I think it's what I say now, you know, Spook for a while was coming out annually every year. And then the last few years, it's kind of taken a back seat. But I think as long as I'm around, Spook will be around, right? As long as there are writers that want to write, they have a place to, as long as they have the energy to put it together. <laughs> And, uh, you know, I've always admired people who start something, anything, you know, and get it off the ground, but also sort of how you get those first contributors to sign on for something that doesn't exist. And I'm curious what your approach was. What did you say to people when you, you <laughs> reached out to them say, okay, I'm starting a literary magazine. I want you, you know, some pretty serious established names already. This was a really good lesson early on. 
I blind emailed a lot of people, a lot of dream authors or dream writers, not thinking they would respond and they responded. Cause they're just like us. I think it's just like people wanting to write and they have ideas and they want to put them places. And if they support a good idea, and I think Spook is a fantastic idea, I think, you know, people are willing to put their efforts behind it. If the Jason Parham of uh, 2012 emailed the current one and said, I'm launching this literary magazine, uh, do you think you would write a piece for it? Yeah. I'm always down to support, you know, emerging sort of cool countercultural things. Um, so I think I would totally be down. I'd probably do it for free too. And in your writing and in Spook, I feel like one of the things that always really strikes me is just the range that you have, the kind of like cultural range, whether it's fiction, nonfiction, but also film, art, you know, photography. And did you come about that through school or did you come about that naturally being a voracious reader and consumer of culture? So how did you sort of become comfortable enough to say, solicit art for the magazine and edit art and edit fiction and edit all these things? How did you have the confidence to do that? I mean, a part of it is sort of like I just consume culture at a, like an insane rate. I grew up watching a lot of TV, listening to the radio all the time in LA, 92.3 The Beat, Power 106, watching a lot of talk shows growing up, going to the movies almost every other weekend with my family. Um, and so I was constantly taking things in. So I think that's part of it. And then obviously sort of my education in school and grad school um, factored into that as well. But I think the real framework for Spook came out of me wanting to model after kind of what The New Yorker was doing or what Harper's was doing, but in a sort of cooler way. And I don't know if we're always successful with our execution, but I think the writers that we're able to tap into and the artists and sort of the range of stories, we're able to show this sort of range and plurality of our experiences in a very unique and singular way that Spook is only able to do. I think when I was pitching the idea, it was sort of like, it's the New Yorker meets Wax Poetics. It's Harper's meets The Fader before I watched The Fader. <laughs> um, so I was saying it's, you know, these two worlds coming together. It's sort of a Lucille Clifton poem set to a mad lib beat, you know? So meanwhile, while you're sort of building this literary magazine, you're also advancing in your career. And tell me how it came about that you ended up at Gawker. Like, were you freelancing there first, writing there first before you became an editor there? How did you land there? And when, and when was that? So after The Voice, which ended, the fellowship ended in 2011, I started freelancing for a while and was still living off my savings a little bit. And then I had a buddy at Complex Magazine in 2012 who was looking for an assistant editor position to fill. Um, he was like, would you love to come work with me? This would be great. And at the time, I was really intent on being a writer. I really wanted to be a writer in New York City. But it seemed like a really great opportunity to get into media in some way. And so I was at Complex for two years. Um, and this was sort of the height of the clickbait era. BuzzFeed was kind of coming along as well. Mm. Um, and we were sort of attuning ourselves to the rhythms of the sort of attention economy. And I did that for two years, editing the tech section a little bit, helping out with the entertainment section at Complex. I wrote a few things for the magazine. And then I got a call from Max Reed. And I didn't know who Max Reed was. I'd never really heard of Gawker before. They were, Max had just taken over. John Click had left. Max Reed had taken over Gawker. He was looking to sort of fill a few new positions. One was a senior editor role that a lot of people had recommended me for that I had, I was not privy to that information. 
so it's kind of cool that people are speaking sort of well of me behind my back, which is nice. <laughs> um, and he was like, we had this job. We think you'd be great for it. We're trying to sort of be more inclusive on the site. We're trying to get a more diverse range of voices on the site. And I'd heard of Gawker, but I didn't really know the reach and sort of impact of Gawker as this sort of like iconic media site. But it seemed like a really cool opportunity. This was 2014, I want to say. And I kind of just took it. And from there, it's kind of been a wild ride. So what was your kind of mandate when you arrived? What did they want from you? So I got brought on as a senior editor at Max. was just like, we want you to help us diversify the voice, the editorial voice of the site. Gawker in its sort of mythology, McDenton being a sort of mythic figure and the site being known as a place where we only publish polemics or really sort of gossipy New York uh, media stories. But they were wanting to broaden that and sort of democratize the site in a way and sort of make sure it reaches a, a larger voice and a larger reach of people. Um, and he was like, so come on, we'll give you a budget. Um, we'll kind of give you free range to do whatever you want to do. You can, you know, build a stable of writers and go from there. And I was young when this happened, you know, this was like six years ago. So it was like a lot of my training in Gawker was me throwing things like, to the wall, ideas to the wall and seeing what stuck and what didn't. <laughs> I rarely think I was successful, but it was, it was a really fun time. I'm curious in what, in what manner you feel like they weren't successful. Cause I, you know, I look through the roster of, you sent me the roster of the stories that you had edited. And I mean, it's like a murderer's row of, of writers. You know, a lot of these people were not big then are now big, big internet writers or just writers. I shouldn't even say internet writers. That's a meaningless uh, statement these days. But I mean, it felt like you did identify talent. And so I'm curious in what sense you mean that it didn't feel successful to you. I don't think it felt successful sometimes in a way in terms of metrics the old school Gawker office was on Prince Street in uh, NoHo, and it was sort of notorious for having a scoreboard when you walked in the door yeah. of the sort of leading traffic stories for the day and of the week. And so that kind of burrows into your mind as an editor because I'm not writing, so it's like a lot of my hits have to be other people's hits. And I didn't really get my white will until a few weeks in, I think, with the Ernest Baker story, but. I think, and this is something I was very fortunate to work with Kiese Lehman a lot on the Saturday essays. And this is something we talked about a lot, where it's like, just by default of us being there and bringing, you know, black voices through the door that had never been on Gawker before, felt like a kind of miracle. So in that way, I think it was very successful. It was, it's hard to gauge it looking back on it now, because I think, I look back and I'm like, dang, I wasn't, I really didn't know what I was doing. <laughs> And you mentioned that Ernest Baker piece. So t first, <laughs> t t tell everyone a little bit, if they don't remember that, uh, what that piece was that became your first kind of mega viral hit. Right. So Ernest, I knew Ernest Baker from Complex. We worked together at Complex. And when I was at Gawker, he had started going freelance a little bit, working with Vice and a few other publications. And so he was like, yo, I have a few ideas, which we open to possibly publishing them on Gawker. And one of the first ideas he pitched to me was this idea of what it's like dating white women as a black guy. Um, and it kind of set off this whole wave of reactions and think pieces to his think pieces to those think pieces. 
it was interesting. It was the first piece of mine in a sort of, if we're measuring things by views and hits, it was my first like platinum hit at Gawker. It was over a million views, which was crazy. Which is what they wanted. I mean, what the leadership wanted. I presumably. think so, yeah. It's sort of Gawker's like, they always want people engaging and talking. They want people activated in a way that um, they aren't on other sites. And sort of Ernest's piece did that. Looking back, I don't know if I would greenlight it, but I think at the time it was a fun thought experiment. I didn't necessarily, it's important to note that I didn't agree with Ernest, but I thought maybe what he was saying could spark conversation and it did. And so why, why do you think you go, looking back, you might not greenlight it? I mean, we saw what happened to James Bannon at the New York Times. <laughs> I mean, we're at publishing bad takes these days. People are so quick to cancel you. Even though I don't think I would mind being canceled, but um, <laughs> I don't know. It's tough. It's tough. I don't know if that piece today even has a place like it did back then. And even back then, I'm not even sure. I was just so young. And again, I was like throwing things at the wall. Like, will this work? Will this stick? If I'm being honest, it kind of haunts me sometimes that that piece did so well. And kind of, it was something I t- had to talk about a lot for like a few years. Really? What, can you talk about that a little more? What, what was the aspect of it that most stuck with you in this kind of haunting way? I think as an editor and as a writer, I'm always... I'm not necessarily writing to any one person. I kind of write and edit for myself. And I think these are good ideas or good stories to put into the world. But in a way, doing the Ernest Baker story, I felt like I kind of let down my community a little bit. I felt like I had betrayed them in a way, if that makes sense. I don't know, it's something I had to reckon with a lot, um, especially a piece like that being on Gawker. This being my first huge piece, it was sort of like, well, what is, you know, <laughs> what the fuck is Jason doing over there? <laughs> but it's something like, you know, I'm, I'm proud of my time there. And that's part of that legacy that I laid. But I think that piece showed me that, it showed me the extent of my powers, I think, as an editor at Gawker. It showed me that, one, I should always try to be responsible in the best way I can. One, we should always write with a little bit of empathy. And two, it showed me the power of the platform in a lot of ways. And then the other thing that I remember from that time, and I was looking back at it now, I mean, it seems like so long ago somehow, but still, there was sort of this culture of transparency there. And you also called out, you know, the leadership and Nick Denton specifically about diversity inclusion at Gawker at that time. And he responded in this very long, I mean, it's thousands of words, the the back and forth. <laughs> I'm curious what that, looking back on that now, what, what that feels like in hindsight. <laughs> Being a Gawker was, I think I still have a little bit of PTSD from working there, but um, yeah, Nick Denton is exactly who people thought. He kind of was this sort of like larger than life figure with very strong opinions and views. He never said what you thought he was going to say. He was always a sort of like nice surprise um, and so when I came out saying, you know, we needed to sort of what I was already doing, but we needed to sort of inflate this as much as we could, because this was, I think, the power of Gawker is that it reaches so many people. And we have a, I think, responsibility during the era of, this is when, you know, Michael Brown had been shot. This is the era of when Black Lives Matters was sort of crystallizing on the internet. We would be sort of at a disadvantage if we weren't using the platform to the best of our abilities, I think. And so I think that was part of me calling him out. 
Um, it was a bit of a risk, but Max and Leah Beckman, who's the managing editor, stood behind me when I came to them and saying, hey, I think I want to say this. And they're like, you should totally publish this. Not knowing it was going to start this whole discourse <laughs> on Gawker internally and then sort of externally on the larger web. But it's just sort of like common sense almost to me, Evan. It's like hire a diverse range of voices, trust those voices, and sort of the proof is in the pudding almost. It's like it'll pay off almost all the time. Um, but I think there's an institution set in place. And in a lot of ways, Gawker sort of saw itself as outside the media institution, but in some ways it was really part of it. And I think that was part of that pushback a little bit from Nick. You know, at some point after that, you got laid off from Gawker. And how did those two things jibe? Like, did you feel like... It's so funny because I always said, they're not going <laughs> to fire the black guy, the only black guy on staff. And then, of course, they fired the only black guy on staff. Um, <laughs> but also funny. the guy who spoke out and said, you should be hiring more people like me or at least not like you. <laughs> you right. Know? It's tough because I think Gawker was a really small outfit and it was about to start this sort of Hulk Hogan litigation and a lot of its resources were being, you know, expunged to sort of go to that and deal with that case. And so there was a series of layoffs in November 2015. I was one of five Gawker staff members who were let go. Kelly Conaboy, Taylor Berman, a few other people. And it was tough to reconcile because I had gotten to a good groove and I thought we were doing some good on the site. Um, so I thought that had to do a lot with the part of the decision that I think in a lot of ways what I was doing wasn't valuable to sort of the core identity of Gawker, what it had always been and what it was always going to be, the sort of cantankerous, leftist, sort of outsidery website. Um, and I was kind of bringing on voices that were, I think, part of a larger democratic of thought and belief and value, but maybe in the long run, maybe didn't have a place on the site. All that said, I loved working there. I love the people there. I think a lot of the people that I work with, I still consider family and I still talk to some of them. So it was a good education, I think, for me as an editor. And you obviously like bounced back from being laid off and landed at the fader and then landed at Wired. And but are you are you the kind of person that that is just sort of like, all right, fine, on to the next one, or that sits in that kind of situation for a while? I will say that those two months, because I was let go in November 2015 and I had a new job by January 2016 at the theater. Um, but those two months off were kind of the best two months of my life <laughs> where I was just really? kind of like freelancing for the all a little bit in a few other places and kind of just binging six feet under, um, binging True Blood and kind of just like getting to know myself more as a writer. But I think getting laid off at Gawker, and this is what I say, that's when sort of everything changed for me. Um, I think getting laid off in a very public fashion at such a high position sort of reorients your idea of what um, working in media is really worth and your value. And so from that point on, from Fader to Wired now, I kind of approach a job as a job. I think media is very fickle. This industry that we work in is very fickle and it's a revolving door and there's always people coming in and out. But I think I'll always write no matter what, but that doesn't necessarily mean I have to write for the theater. It doesn't necessarily mean I have to write for Wired, which I love. And I'll be there for as long as they want to have me. But I think that, you know, you can always make a job for yourself as a writer. And I think we're seeing this now with things like Substack newsletters, 
We're seeing this now with Patreons. I think we're seeing people getting to this sort of ecosystem of, well, let me support somebody's writing that I believe in and I'll pay them $5 a month because this is important to me. And when, when you ended up at Wired, I have sort of a version of the same question about Gawker, which is like, what did they want from you? What are they looking for from you as a culture writer? So right, coming on at Wired was a total 180 from everything I'd done before that. At Complex, at Gawker, and at Fader, I was an editor. At Wired, they specifically hired me to come on as a culture writer. I was hired by Nick Thompson, who had just been in, knighted as EIC maybe a year before. And Peter Rubin, who was my editor at the time, was like, I think we should hire Jason Parnan. He's great. Peter and Nick were sort of my early champions in my tenureship at Wired. They're like, come and write culture for us. We don't know exactly what culture is on Wired right now, on, you know, in 2017, 2018, but we want you to help us figure that out. I worked at Wired. Uh, I'm an old person. So I worked at Wired <laughs> in the late 90s was the time when I was on staff, like 99. And then it was like, it was very tech oriented. And of course, there was like music and MP3s and things like that. And like people were, were starting to see how these things came together. But now culture and tech, they're just one, like they just seem united to me. So I'm interested in your view. And again, like your range of that you write about is so wide. How do you decide sort of what fits into your purview? Like when you, you write a lot of pieces, what, when you wake up and say, okay, this is the thing I'm going to tackle. What is it that drives that to be the piece you want to go after? So one thing I love once that Nick said in a meeting was, I think a very simple understanding of Wired is that it's a tech magazine, which it is, but I think a more complex way of you know, approaching Wired and everything that we do is that it's really a magazine about change and the way the world is changing. And one of the ways it's changing the fastest is through technology, but it's happening in other ways too. And so as a culture writer, I approach it from that perspective. In what ways is the world changing in TV, in what ways is the world changing in music, in what ways is the world changing and advancing in film, um, and how can I best not bring my own my perspective to that, but sort of the wired angle to that as well. And how do you how do you sort of uh, orient that around your perspective? And by that I mean I was listening to another an interview that you've done, and you said at some point that you said my mandate. Uh, and you, I think you were talking about sort of your whole career. My mandate has been to add more context to the story of blackness. I think it's almost like inherent in everything that I write about. I think, again, going back to Kiesi Lehman and working with him and having so many conversations with him at Gawker when he was a contributing editor and I was a senior editor. And we worked a lot every week on the Saturday essays. But in our conversation, something we would always talk about was this idea of um, decentering whiteness and what that looked like online and how could we write to our own wants and aims and passions and quirks. And I think for me, it's about sort of expanding that context of what blackness can be and how it shows up in the world. And so sometimes that presents itself in a cover story like um, last week with sort of digital blackface thing. Sometimes that presents itself in other ways through sports stories, writing about Westbrook, Sometimes that presents itself writing about Insecure, writing a feature story about the Oprah Winfrey Network. It, it kind of jumps and moves and sort of snakes in different ways for me. But I think it's important to do that because I think, I don't think I've been working in media that long, maybe professionally 10 years. I don't know if I would count the voices as a professional experience. So maybe since starting at Complex in 2012, so eight years. And if you've worked in media long enough, I think, 
as a person on the outside, which is to say a non-white person, which is to say anybody that's not a white man, I think you start to see stories that are made a certain way. And at some point you're like, well, why aren't we talking about it from this angle? Or why aren't we talking about it from this vantage point? And so for me, that's always been kind of important to sort of shift the view a little bit and say, this is my default, which is the default. And this is the point that I'm going to speak from, even if it's not your default, right? And then slowly, if more and more people do that, then the default begins to change a little bit, I think. And I, I do want to talk about this cover story. So tell me when you first started thinking about this idea. So the digital blackface cover story. I started thinking about this top of this year and Lauren Michelle Jackson had already done a lot of really interesting and incredible scholarship around it. There are obviously tons and tons of books about sort of black minstrelsy and the ways that it sort of mutated from the theater to TV to radio to film. But I was really interested what it looked like on TikTok. You know, TikTok, people say is the future. It's this place of joy and happiness, this place of sort of like gonzo comedy sketches, self-help and wellness. It's sort of like reimagining and reinventing how we think of entertainment and TV. And I totally think it is. I've written about that. But I was really interested on the flip side, what it looked like for Black creators specifically in this moment, this sort of urgent moment that we're in right now, post-George Floyd, what it looked like for them on the platform. To sort of paraphrase Nina Simone, what does it mean to sort of be young, gifted Black, and on TikTok in 2020, right? So that was sort of mm -hmm. the idea I had. Was it difficult to get the creators to talk to you about it? I mean, obviously, there were already some people on the platform who were speaking out. And so that feels like an avenue. But were people open to talking about it? Was this a, a topic that they felt like was out there waiting to be discussed? So I think... I didn't go in specifically questioning people about blackface. I was sort of reaching out to a ton of black creators. You know, what's your experience like on the site? What are you seeing? How long have you been on here? Tell me sort of your day to day. What are your thoughts on TikTok in general? But, you know, eventually a thread after you know, the 10th call, a thread emerges where it's like, oh, we're seeing a lot of in-app harassment. Oh, we're seeing like a lot of like casual and overt racism from white creators oh, we're seeing sort of like silencing on the side of TikTok. And so you kind of weave all of that together with sort of the blackface at the heart of it, I think. Because I think it's really interesting the way in which identity exists on the platform. Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, I think were sort of the analog to this in a way where blackness and black identity was sort of a sort of flat construction. And on TikTok, it's sort of like more 3D. Because if you really think about it, what they're doing is really genius in a way, the way that TikTok equips the creators. They've given them like the suite of editing tools that, you know, directors use. That's sort of yeah. David Fincher would use to make like a Netflix movie or something, right? And so imagine having all of these capabilities to create something in your hand, but then you're sort of warping it and perverting it in a way where it's like, oh, I want to be funny, so I'm going to make fun of what it means to be Black, or I'm going to make a joke about somebody's hair. And then because of the culture of TikTok, it's sort of like mushrooms from there. It kind of snowballs and everybody starts doing it. So it's a really interesting landscape. I love TikTok, but it has a lot of problems. It felt like there were these two threads of the piece. And one of them was the way that Black creators are treated 
on the platform by both the platform itself and by other people on the platform. And the other one was this somewhat more subtle but fascinating way in which very, very quickly, like in an instant, in a day, someone creates something that then gets remixed and used by other people. And sometimes in ways that are, it's sort of hard to feel out the way that they're exploitative. Like you can kind of know it if you see it. And I'm curious how you tried to capture that part of of what was going on. The sort of structural genius of the story I have to give to my editor, whose also name is Jason. Jason K. He's a senior editor at Wired. I work with him on all my long form stuff that goes into the magazine. Um, this was kind of his idea. He was like, if we tell this story about TikTok, how can we tell it in a way that's sort of deeply fascinating and continues to kind of unspool but surprise people in every section? And so I knew that the blackface was sort of going to be at the heart of it, the way in which sort of identity was being tossed around and played with in, you know, very ugly ways. But I wanted to also talk about the ways, it's sort of a two-sided coin, right? It's like you have creators saying that they're being silenced by TikTok, TikTok obviously denying this, but if enough people are saying it, then some of it must obviously be true. But at the same time, you have creators within the app also abusing Black creators, whether it's harassing them through monkey emojis or banana emojis, whether it's duetting them and saying, you don't belong on here, go back to Africa. Um, so you have all these sort of webs and currents coming together, I think, in a really fascinating and interesting way. I think a lot of what was happening and what is happening still on TikTok obviously had been written about before, but I wanted to show it in a way that it was coming at Black creators from all sides. It seems to me there's an, there's like an argument on the other side where people would say, oh, well, this is what this app is all about, is remixing and taking something that someone does at a challenge and then redoing it myself. And it's like naturally appropriation. And did you feel like you were falling into that that sort of discourse? Right. I think a lot of my, one of the original ideas was we're going to talk to as many white creators who are doing this as black creators, um, in addition to others, all sorts of creators, obviously. Um, but I really didn't want to talk to a lot of white teens who are sort of doing this. But I think it's not surprising that over time I was ghosted. People stopped responding to my emails. Nobody wanted to talk to me anymore because I think it suggests on their part a little bit that there is maybe something ugly here that they're doing that they don't understand the sort of gravity of it, I think. It's tough. I think people really just want to go viral on TikTok and be famous. And I think this engenders a culture and a community of people who will just do anything to get that. And I think that's really at the heart of this problem. And did you find that it's sort of entered the stream of the kind of like cancel culture discussion? Because it struck me reading it. It's like, here's people that are literally getting canceled off the app. You know, some of the sources in the story are saying, I posted this about the way black creators are treated on TikTok and I got canceled. Like my post got taken down, a sort of literal cancellation. And I'm curious, like if it's, this is fit into that, you know, ridiculous back and forth that seems to go on. I don't know if this particular instance has, I think cancel culture is one really stupid and dumb on, on, on one side, but it's also deeply complex because I think it's become this sort of feral environment where we pounce on people and we're ready to counsel them at the first time anything that they say that we disagree with. 
and it doesn't leave room for discussion. And I think this cover story was an attempt to find that sort of discussion, like what's actually happening here? What are the motivations behind these posts? How are black creators feeling in response to this? And I was really wanting to burrow into that as much as I could. Yeah, I met, when we were texting, I mentioned this Margot Jefferson story from like the 70s. You may, you may or may not agree, but to me, it echoed. I mean, this story is, uh, and Margot and I talked about it. Actually, I think you've interviewed her as well. Echo her, um, yeah. She's one of my favorite interviews that I've ever had. She's such a generous talker and just gives you all of her time and her attention. I love her. <laughs> yeah. And, and this piece is from like 1973. It's about rock and roll music and appropriation and theft. And I felt like there were bits of that story that you could swap them into your story and they would they would absolutely fit. So she writes, black music and with it, the private black self were suddenly grossly public, tossed on stage, dressed in clown white and bandied about with the gleeful arrogance that just yesterday had chosen to ignore and condescend. And I feel like that, that, that to me is like some of the subtle aspect of your piece is that it's about people who are kind of exhibiting a private culture that they've had themselves that's now being sort of like instantly commodified and repackaged and repurposed for people who indeed like aren't interested in it. They're not invested in it. I think what Margo was talking about, obviously what I'm talking about is this sort of a deeply American problem, right? So some of the research I've done before this, I was reading this book called Love and Death by um, the cultural historian Eric Locke, where he talks about how minstrelsy and minstrel shows were sort of the first public recognition of black culture in the 1930s and 1940s. Black culture had never publicly been acknowledged as a thing before that, really, as labor, obviously, as capital, but not as culture, right? As something that could be sort of commodified as entertainment on a large scale. And so we obviously see this mutated morph, and Margot talks a lot about it in respect to rock and roll and music. Um, and then so we can map that to sort of what's happening now, what I'm speaking to on TikTok and sort of blackface. So I think you have this thread. And I think a lot of platforms deal with this problem too. Like it's not just singular to TikTok. It's like, I think as platforms, as tech platforms scale, they sort of take in the world, the larger world itself. It's like, you can't have a platform with 800 million people on it and not have some ugliness on there. That's just impossible. Obviously, TikTok could do a better job of moderating that. Um, but I thought it was important to put myself in the story in sort of the same way that Margo in some way puts herself in the story and her perspective. Because I think as you know, someone who's a millennial, I, I live on TikTok too. And so yeah. this is my world that we're talking about. There's no way I could sort of engage the question and the topic of blackness and sort of not say, as a black man in America today, you know, in this very urgent moment, it's like, how can I not speak to that as well, I think, and talk to the personal ways, and which was, I think, the last section, the final flip is like, well, for me, this is what it looks like internally from the inside. And this is also this sort of this perverse form of like identity making that's happening, the sort of theft that's being taken from me that I sort of have no say of anymore. Is your impulse naturally to put yourself into pieces to have things be first person or, or do you have to get pushed in that direction? I think this story was interesting because 
I think in the very first draft, I was not in the story. And then by draft three, which was like the money draft, was like, okay, now we have like a, a story here, <laughs> right? It's like now the editor's like, okay, now we can maybe publish this. <laughs> but, um, I put myself in the story and it, I think it helped to make it more personal in a way, which is not the Wired thing to do, right? Especially a Wired cover story. It's like, it's so rare that, unless it's a straight up essay, sort of Paul Force thing last year with his sort of like love and all of the internet, which was, phenomenal and iconic and I love it it's sort of like something I go back to a lot which you have something like that which is like deeply personal in first person or you have something like you've done which is like heavily reported and you're not really in the story right and so I kind of wanted to meld those two worlds together a little bit and sort of experiment with the form and be a not really a pioneer in a way but sort of like can I get away with this why will this work <laughs> um but I think it was the most beneficial and successful form of the story but I don't I don't naturally always want to put myself in the story I'm very weary to talk about myself and put my sort of problems on the page <laughs> um, you're in that you're in that only fan story though <laughs> I was <laughs> I thought we would actually make it through the entire interview and not <laughs> talk about porn but we can do that <laughs> I mean we don't have to talk about it in depth. But, That's uh, like the one story at Wired that I look back on. I'm like, oh, I was actually ahead of the curve on everybody. I, I, yeah. can't say, I can't really say that about anything else I've written. I was really interested with the story I wrote last year for our um, sort of Fantastic Planet package. When we talked about fandom, how fandom was sort of showing up on the internet in all these cool and interesting ways. I was really interested in how influencers who had never done sex work were now navigating to this platform that was sort of tailored to them to sort of build their brand, build revenue as well. Um, what did that mean for an influencer, influencer dumb? What did that mean for people like us who were sort of, had seen influencers one way on Instagram or YouTube, and now we're seeing them in these really strange and revealing and sort of erotic ways that we hadn't before. But it is one of those stories where if, you, if you're gonna report it out, you gotta get on the platform. Right. So that one definitely had myself in it from the beginning. I think that was the sort of money hit with that one where I was like, I have to put myself in this and maybe just talk about how I was kind of addicted to OnlyFans for a little bit. I then watched way too much porn. <laughs> and maybe we can make a story out of this. <laughs> and you did. <laughs> and I always hear it's like the story people only ever want to talk to me about. But it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> and what, what do you... Um... When you sit down to write, we talked about you have a literary background, you have a journalistic background, and especially like in this TikTok story, but other pieces of yours as well, I feel like you're like sneaking in literary approaches sometimes, like things that you don't normally find in these magazines or even on these sites that feel a little bit more, I don't know, just a, a, a little bit of a different style of, of writing. Do you feel yourself? I was curious if that's something you try to do or that's your natural approach. Like there's a very sort of spare way in which a lot of these stories would be written. And I feel like you're layering in something else. I think each story has its own instincts, but I think as a writer, actually, you know, I went to school for journalism, for print journalism, and they teach you how to write a story, right? This is how you write a print story for a newspaper. And I think a lot of what I do now is unlearning everything I learned. And so it's mixing a bit of what I learned in undergrad and a bit of what I learned in grad school where I was reading all these sort of literary novels and mixing the two in sort of a feature form that 
I think in some ways does exist, but not necessarily all the time in Wired. A place like Wired is, I think under Nick has been more open to that, which I'm really thankful for, but it's tough. I think a lot of my stories now and my ideas, I'll just start with a question or a sentence and just see where it takes me, a very small nugget of an idea. I don't think I'm naturally drawn to that form, but I think for the porn influencer story and for the digital blackface story, it sort of meant that form lent itself to the sort of, this is what the story called for. And you, you've written about at different times, sort of the exhaustion that comes with writing online and with, you know, living online even. And, you know, this is how you make your living. You, you both have to consume a tremendous amount of culture, as far as I can tell. Wait, many, many times more culture than I personally consume myself in order to have the range to write about all these topics. But that also means you can't just check out from it or you can't do your job. So what it, how do you feel like it's affecting you now? I mean, I think it's day by day, obviously. I think we're in a special time. We have a pandemic, we have a possible race war, we have an election coming up. We have so many things coming at us on our day to day, but I don't know, it's tough to be online in the same way that it's tough to just be human in the world, I think. Um, I think it's both thrilling and exciting, but it's also very daunting. I think we're in such a special moment to be a black creator, right? It's like some of the best stuff I'm seeing on TV is from black women creatives, from you know, Insecure to I May Destroy You to P-Valley, you know, black women just out here killing it. But it's also incredibly exhausting to have to consume all these other things that are coming at you too whether it's Trump, whether it's something else. Um, and I think it's, it's just a matter of sort of our own personal willingness. And I think it's those small things where it's like, even though we have to be in this environment, and this is our job to be you know, cultural critics. This is what we have to do. We have to report the times, but we also have to be good to ourselves in a way, right? It's like, we can't constantly be on and taking in all these things. We have to sort of slow down and, you know, go for a walk. I was happy this morning because every Sunday your phone sends you the sort of t how much time you spent on your phone the <laughs> and I'm down 15%. So I'm very happy about that. This week. <laughs> I haven't been on my phone as much, which is great. <laughs> Hopefully I can keep the streak going. <laughs> if you're me, that never keeps up. It's like the, the better I do one week, the worse I do the next. But you mentioned the, the, everything that's happening in the culture right now. And I'm, I'm interested in this, how you feel about the relationship between the culture and politics, because you mentioned, it's almost like there are these two things going on. One of which is there are these very vibrant cultural products being created. There are discussions going on in society right now about race, obviously like about class, about the virus. And then there's this sort of immovable object in the political discourse, which is like Trump and the election and they feel to me so divided. There's the one thing going on over here and then there's the political discourse, which feels like it's not necessarily taking up all of what's happening in this other discourse. And I'm curious how you find the through lines between what's happening in culture and what it means to be a cultural critic now when there is this kind of like immovable object for the moment, which is Trump's America as it exists. Right, so I think sometimes the answer is you don't. It's like you have to 
understand that sometimes we take in TV shows or films and we have to just take them for what they are. And we, everything doesn't necessarily have to be connected to what's going to go down in November or what's happening across the country right now, right? Because I think it's important to keep a healthy sort of dose of um, detachment from that. Because I think that's part of sort of our own self-preservation, right? It's like if you were constantly plugged into what's happening in November, we're constantly plugged into what's happening on the internet and Twitter, I think we'd all go crazy. And we are all kind of going crazy already, right? <laughs> <laughs> so I think sometimes it's good to take the, a TV show or a film or whatever, what have you, and use it as a way to escape. But I think sometimes in my writing, what I try to do is say, hey, it's important to connect the dots here, whether it's... So something I write about a lot is TV. And I think reality TV is so essential to how we understand Donald Trump, right? And so I think trying to connect those two things is really fun for me, but also really critical because it shows how what works in one medium is also working in another medium and how we can sort of better understand it to get over it or get through it or what have you. And do you think of yourself primarily as a critic in terms of your culture writing or, you know, there's some line between criticizing the art and culture or using it as a jumping off point for other ideas. And I, I know you sort of do both, and I'm, I'm wondering, do you think of yourself as sort of lying in one tradition? It's tough. I go back and forth a lot. I think of myself some days as a critic, some days I think of myself as a journalist, but I essentially mostly think of myself as an essayist, somebody who's trying to sort of bridge, as you say, those two traditions. My approach to writing now is kind of simple. I kind of don't really write about things that I'm, I don't like, right? which is maybe a weird sort of echo chambery kind of way to approach writing because I'm always writing about really only things I like and want to hear about. But I think blackface covers stories to get examples that where it's like, I'm deeply interested in TikTok and this was one way we could approach it, right? I'm deeply interested in reality TV and maybe talking about it through the prism of Trump is one way we can differently understand it, right? So I'm going to let you go, but you said there's a new issue of Spook coming. Is that... Uh... When's that happening? What's the, what's the story like of that? I put wild deadlines on Twitter so people can hold me accountable. Um, <laughs> I'm here. I'm here. I'm here to hold you accountable right now. <laughs> and now it's on long form, so I have to do it by spring 2021. But um, I think the last few years sort of writing full time. So when I started Wired, it was my first gig since I'd started professionally where I was just writing full time. And so in a lot of ways, I was relearning how to write, especially on the internet. And so it kind of took away the time I had for a spook. But I do actually want to publish an issue next year. Um, some friends have been sending me ideas, possibly about the pandemic, possibly just about 2020 in general, because each month has given us something different. But it'll definitely be out next year. I, I, I definitely want to get together and sort of fellowship with a lot of artists and Black writers and creators. I think the joy for me of spook has been sort of the joy, the great fortune of my career, I think, has been being able to surround myself with a community of people who not only believe in my talent, but who believe that they have an important place in the world as well and that their voices have a say in what's happening. And I think Spook is a testament to that. What I've been doing at Wired and Gawker was a testament to that. Um, but yes, <laughs> Spook will be out next year. <laughs> <laughs> I work surprisingly well under pressure. If I never had a deadline, nothing would get turned in. Well, you're on the cover of a magazine right now, so uh, it's working. <laughs> whatever's, whatever's happening is working. It's working. Something is working. 
All right, Jason, thank you for taking the time. Uh, it's great to talk to you. Thank you so much, Edwin. That's it for this week's Long Form Podcast. I'm Evan Ratliff, your co-host. Thanks to Jason for coming in. His uh, story for Wired about TikTok is on the September cover. You should definitely go check it out. My co-hosts are Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer. Our editor is Janelle Pfeiffer. Our intern is Julianne Parker. And our sponsor, as always, is MailChimp. We'll see you next week.